Hello, my name is Charlie Moores and you're about to listen to a fascinating shortcast with environmental theorist Dr. Matthew Adams, in which he describes his research into Pavlov's dogs, discovering that thousands of dogs were stolen off the street and that the results of Pavlov's gruesome experiments are not as clear-cut as usually portrayed. Matthew also explains how he wants experimental animals to be seen as individuals and not the interchangeable automatons so often depicted in scientific literature. I'm Matthew Adams and I'm an academic and psychologist based at the University of Brighton in the UK. A strong focus of my research, writing and teaching is the relationship between humans and the rest of nature, including humans and animals, especially in the context of the Anthropocene. But for this shortcast, I'm going to talk about a specific area of human-animal relations I'm passionate about. It's close to home for me as a psychologist. It's the experiences of experimental animals in psychological research. I'm particularly interested in the role they have played in the history and development of psychology and how animal life and welfare and subjectivity continues to be made invisible in that history in ways that I think has ramifications for how we treat, think about and understand experimental animals today. I'm going to tell you about an example that particularly fascinates me, Pavlov's dogs. No doubt you've heard of Ivan Pavlov. He was born in the Russian provinces in 1849 and he worked his way from relative poverty to oversee an enormous St. Petersburg laboratory complex. Along the way, moving from physiology into psychology, becoming the first Russian Nobel Prize winner and the foremost public figure of Soviet science for decades. Today is most famous for the discovery of classical conditioning or learning through association. Put simply, how two stimuli become linked together to produce a new learned response in a person or animal. Maybe this needs a little bit more explanation. Picture a bowl of dog food uh, with a steaming, meaty aroma. This is an unconditional stimulus. It naturally stimulates reflex salivation anytime, any place in a dog. Let's call our dog Napoleon, one of Pavlov's dog's real names. It's just what happens. Next, we see a metronome, now labelled as a neutral stimulus. It ticks away. And we see Napoleon looking quizzical definitely not salivating. It has a neutral, in other words, no effect. However, if we pair the metronome with food often enough, Napoleon eventually salivates to the metronome alone. Simple as that. In this case, the metronome is now labelled as conditional stimuli and dog's salivation a conditional reflex. This is learning through association or classical conditioning. And these are the experiments that underpin the idea of a Pavlovian response, a term that's entered into popular culture. What was considered especially remarkable was Pavlov's ability to establish the laws of classical conditioning through carefully controlled experiments with dogs, one of the first series of experiments in psychology. Today, Pavlov is still one of the most cited psychologists, and his classical conditioning experiments are always covered in A-level and undergraduate classes. When it comes to Pavlov's dogs, this is more or less where the story ends. In psychology textbooks and the like, normally in a labelled table or diagram. The dogs literally represented as two-dimensional. It is the same in most popular and academic coverage too. 
the dog's anonymous role fulfilled as a reliable proxy for humans, establishing universal hard-set laws that govern animal, including human, behaviour and experience. As I was and still am interested in rethinking the theory and practice of human-animal relations and animal ethics, I wanted to take a closer look at the kingdom of dogs as one visitor to Pavlov's St. Petersburg laboratory complex in the 1920s called it, to place their lives and relations in the spotlight. And so I've set about finding out what I could in Pavlov biographies, other accounts from the time, photographic archives and other papers. And I'm genuinely amazed by what I found. There's so much I could talk about here. I'll just give you a taste of what I've discovered so far. Pavlov needed dozens of dogs at any one time for his experiments, thousands over his long career. Where these dogs came from is a question rarely if ever asked today. In some older biographies of Pavlov from the 1960s, there is a quote often attributed to him that, I'm quoting here, dogs were collected with the help of street thieves who used to steal those with collars as well as those without. No doubt we shared the onus of the sin with the thieves. So we have some idea that they were basically just gathered up, strays and pets not distinguished. How were they treated? Pavlov's early career focused on canine physiology rather than psychology and involved unquestionably grim and barbaric experimental procedures with many dogs killed and maimed along the way. To collect and study various secretions involved in digestion, for example, Pavlov, who himself was a skilled ambidextrous surgeon, created what became known as the sham feeding system. This involved Pavlov or a co-worker removing a dog's esophagus, creating an opening in the animal's throat, so any and all food that was eaten would fall out, never making it to the stomach, so the dog would remain hungry and produce digestive fluids. Further holes were then surgically created along the digestive system to allow measuring the quantity and chemical properties of fluids in more detail. All of this whilst the dog was still living. Later studies involved less invasive surgery, relatively speaking, often demanding just one surgical procedure, the insertion of a fistula in a dog's cheek so co-workers could collect saliva during conditioning experiments. This meant they lived longer and formed closer relationships with the co-workers they were assigned to. They were named, a fact rarely if ever mentioned. The names given to some of Pavlov's dogs do survive in various documents. And in my own ongoing research, I try to rediscover these names and include them in what I write. Names like Napoleon, Toy, August, Umnitsta, Diana, Milord and Mampus. The key issue for conditioning experiments was often surviving boredom rather than surviving per se for both dogs and human co-workers. Experiments often lasted for 8, even 12 hours at a stretch, involving repeated presentation of food, pressing the occasional button and collecting saliva, with Pavlov himself regularly doing the rounds to make sure no one fell asleep or slipped out whilst an experiment was in progress. Not that all was now rosy, Later conditioning experiments still often involved electrocution and pain infliction, whilst the onerously named Tower of Silence complex was purposefully built so that electric shock experiments designed to induce mental breakdowns in dogs, deplorable by any historical standard, could be pursued with precision. Meanwhile, in the basement of Pavlov's main complex, a factory-like production line system was set up to extract gastric juices from the dog's stomachs on an industrial scale. It was profitably marketed, this liquid, 
packaged up and shipped around the world as a popular cure for indigestion in humans. Yep. Four and a half thousand litres of the stuff was being produced annually by 1929. A final intriguing point is that in reality, Pavlov's dogs did not respond like the docile experimental objects they are still often represented as today. As a psychologist who has long accepted the received wisdom of conditioning experiments and the hard set laws involved, this shocked me in a different sense. It's what preeminent historian and biographer of Pavlov, Professor Daniel Toads, calls Pavlov's industrial secret, a secret that is still rarely shared today. Results were carefully arranged and selectively presented to maintain this idea of hard-set laws. But in fact, the dogs were lively, unpredictable characters. Different dogs reacting to different stimuli in different ways. Even the same dogs responding differently to the same stimuli in different ways at different times or on different days. To cope with all this, Pavlov developed a now little-known personality theory to try and keep up with these varied responses to explain difference in terms of a set number of inborn personality types or traits. But a satisfactory explanation escaped him for all his working life. Initially, he came up with two personality types, but his framework ballooned and still couldn't accommodate his varied findings. In fact, he ended up with 23 nervous types. These are just a few snippets, but for me, these canine-focused biographic details reveal how experimental animals are far from the interchangeable automatons often depicted. They are living, breathing subjects with complex feelings, no doubt caught up in varied interactions with co-workers in the lab, dogs and handlers in wider laboratory life. There's lots more to this tale, not least war, revolution, persecution, anti-vivisection protests, natural disaster and international celebrity, all of which had at least as much impact on the dogs' lives as much as Pavlov's. And there are countless other tales from psychology too, Skinner's rats and pigeons to Harlow's monkeys. And while my example here has been historical, it also has contemporary relevance. To take one example, cognitive psychology still involves surgical procedures that, to quote the authors of one 2020 textbook, are done because the invasive techniques involved can only be used on non-human species. The only here is the logic of human exceptionalism or speciesism. And it speaks volumes of how far we still have to go in terms of ethically challenging worldviews that render animal experience, intelligence and subjectivity invisible. Finally, I want to rip out those pages in psychology textbooks with their tired and trite representations of Pavlov's dogs and other experimental animals past and present as interchangeable and characterless. I want to replace them with accounts which do their subjective lives and the messiness of experimentation justice, to produce accounts in which the kingdom of dogs break free from their shackles on the experimenter's stand. You can read more about my research in various journal articles, essays and online commentary, or in my book, Anthropocene Psychology, which has a chapter dedicated to Pavlov's dogs. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to create a shortcast of your own, please get in touch. You can leave us a message at offtheleashpodcasts.co.uk, on Twitter at OTL Podcasts or on Instagram at OTL Pods. And if you'd like to hear more powerful audio supporting wildlife, animal rights and the environment, 
We're on all major streaming platforms. Just look for Off The Leash Podcasts and subscribe for free.